Hello everyone, my name is Arti and this is the Mahabharata. Online at www.themahabharatapodcast.com or if you have comments, questions or quarrels, please visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Mahabharata podcast. Episode 39, Jarasand. With our last episode, we officially concluded book one of the Mahabharata, the Adi Parva, possibly the most difficult book of the text. So congratulations to all who survived it. One down, 17 to go. We're now entering book two, called the Sabha Parva, or the Book of the Assembly, which you'll be relieved to know is a much more compact affair, only 72 chapters to the Adi Parvas, 225. The events of Book 2 will also be more familiar to us, involving a little sacrifice aimed at world domination, two entirely inconsequential gambling matches, some key figures whose vacations will be timed to miss cataclysmic events, and some mildly questionable judgment on the part of the Dharma king. So let's get started, shall we? When we left off last time, the peripatetic Rishi Narada had dropped by the fabulous Indraprasth palace for a visit. As Yudhishthira had led him on a guided tour, the Rishi had done what we imagine Queen Elizabeth does when she visits a junior monarch in another country. He'd interrogated Yudhishthira on his proper management of the new kingdom, dispensing sage counsel. His parting advice had been that Yudhishthira should perform the Rajasuya sacrifice. Your dad Pandu's really keen, and we think you definitely have a shot. I mean, what could go wrong? Sure, you're looking to reduce your neighbours to vassals, and friends and foes alike must assent to your overlordship, but it's all in the art of persuasion, isn't it? As Tony Robbins says, go out there and crush it. He'd left Yudhishthira with a copy of the great master's Awaken the Giant Within, and packing some samosas for the road, taken his leave. Okay, you got me. Samosas didn't arrive in India until the 13th century, so probably it was alu paratha. After Narada's departure, Yudhishthira ponders. He's excited at the idea of being a universal monarch, but he's also fretful. I mean, there's a lot to consider. In comparison to your neighbours, you're a relative upstart, hardly set up your kingdom a few years ago. And it's a pretty provocative move, right? You're about to declare yourself king of the world, master of all you survey. Even your friends might consider this a poke in the eye. As for enemies, they'll go ballistic. But on the other hand, you have this wealthy kingdom, a palace that outclasses any in the world. Your father's Pandu, your brothers are Arjuna and Pima. You kind of want to take all of that for a test drive, you know? So Yudhishthira starts cautious consultations. He takes his friend's temperature with casual reference to Narada's suggestion. He said he should perform the Rajasuya sacrifice. Crazy, right? But he said my dad really wants me to. 
He talks to his brothers. He seeks the advice of Vyasa and his priest Dhamya. He draws up lists of pros and cons and posts Tony Robbins' most inspirational quotes on his bathroom mirror. The path to success is to take massive, determined action. And most people fail in life because they major in minor things. The man's so gifted with language, you know, so clever. And most poignantly, I challenge you to make your life a masterpiece. Yudhishthira decides he wants his life to be a masterpiece. He prepares Excel sheets of income and expenditures. He asks his generals to propose strategies for implementation. He creates flowcharts of anticipated outcomes. Then he calls Krishna. Everyone else will tell me only what I want to hear. Yours is the only opinion I can trust. When Krishna arrives at the airport, the brothers straight away whisk him away to dinner. Then they huddle in the palace library, nursing cognacs. Krishna's blunt in his opinion. Look, Yudi, you're a good guy and you certainly have the qualities to be emperor of the world. But I'm not going to lie to you. This is a daunting and perilous venture and you have stiff competition. He gives them the rundown on every king and every problem, and they consider each systematically. Most of the royal lineages in existence today are the descendants of either Ila or Ikshvaku, children of the sun. They number 101 royal houses. Most of them will be able to negotiate, lure, or intimidate. But the 101st house is a problem. You're talking about Jarasand, king of Magadha? Yudhishthira asks. Precisely, Krishna confirms. He's a man of megalomaniacal ambition and already considers himself the de facto king of the world. He's already announced his intents to perform the Rajasuya sacrifice and formalize it, but he wants to make it especially memorable. Krishna gives them some background on Jarasand. I know Jarasand all too well. Frankly, he's been a thorn in my side for years. First, he's the father-in-law of Kunz, whom, as you know, I killed a few years ago after he'd imprisoned my parents and killed my siblings. Ever since, Jarasan's been hounding us for revenge. His armies have chased us out of Mathura, so we now live in fear in Dwarka. We've built a massive fortress to fend him off, and even our women are trained to fight. Second, he's got loyal and powerful allies like the Chedi king Shishupal. That cretin actually runs around calling himself the Param Purusha. Can you imagine my title, the Supreme Person? I should have disposed of that imbecile long time ago. And Jarasan's got all the other kings shaking in their shoes. In his preparations for the Rajasuya, he's been at war for years. He's taken 86 kings captive and is looking to add 14 more. His plan is to offer a human sacrifice of 100 kings. Classic terror tactics. If that doesn't induce kings to into compliance, what will? 
Krishna concludes, let me put it this way, even if we were to fight him with divine weapons that kill 100 at a time, we would not be able to destroy him in 300 years. He's that powerful. His brothers were superb warriors. His allies are fiercely loyal. He's the bane of many kings and has made my own family's life hell. So you want to perform the Raj Suya? That's what you're taking on. The ghost of Tony Robbins can be seen tiptoeing to the exit. Yikes. Yudhishthira and the brothers are silent for a while. Look, you're right. It's too difficult. This is my ambition. I want to rule the world. But I can't justify endangering everyone else's life for my desire. Pima and Arjuna are like my eyes. And you're like my mind. Where would I be if I lost you all? No. It's too dangerous. Arjuna stands up. We can't give up without even trying. Are we warriors or what? What's all our training for? What's our army for? Why do we have all these divine weapons? We have to at least try. But Yudhishthira is now in retreat. No, it's too risky. Krishna stands up too. Arjuna is right here, Yudi. He's got the correct mentality for a warrior. We can't fall just because it's too difficult, so what if it's risky? We don't any of us know when we're going to die, but it's not like we'll become immortal by trying to avoid death. He addresses Yudhishthira. When two sides are equal, the outcome is in doubt, but two sides are never equal. The side with the better strategy always wins. If you identify your enemy's weakness and target that specifically, you don't need to be stronger than him. Even without an army, you can destroy him. And Krishna tells them a story. King Jarasand is the son of Brihadrat, not important for our purposes except as the ruler of the great kingdom of Magadha. I know what you're thinking. Magadha, like the great state that was a powerhouse in the ancient world, the seat of the Mauryan Empire, the Gupta Empire, popular haunt of early Buddhists and Jains? Yes, that Magadha, roughly modern-day Bihar. According to the Mahabharata, Jarasandha's daddy Brihadrat was its first king, a smart, capable, powerful man. He married twin girls, princesses from the kingdom of Kashi. He was charmed that his wives were twins, and upon marrying them, he promised he would always treat them equally so as not to cause conflict between them. So he was careful to organize his conjugal time equitably. Yet, after many years of concerted effort with both, he was unable to sire an heir. No clue why. So one day, he's at the local drinking establishment, pouring out his woes to a sympathetic bartender. It's not fair, you know. I have everything, but what's the point when I have no children? Who's going to continue my lineage? Who'll feed my ancestors in the afterworld? He stumbles out of the pub and sees a sage sitting outside, resting against the trunk of a mango tree. Why, oh why, is this happening to me? He wails. Suddenly, a juicy, plump mango falls into the rishi's lap, and he offers it to the king. Here, take this. It's going to help you. The king accepts the mango with both hands. 
A mango? Seriously, that's going to solve my problems? But he takes the mango home and hands it to his wives. While he passes out on the couch, they split the deliciousness into two and each enjoys half of it. And as often happens when you've eaten the food of the gods, a few weeks later, the women find themselves pregnant. Celebrations break out in the kingdom and the king dances with joy. Names are debated, nurseries prepared, and for many months, every event anticipates the arrival of the newborns. Finally, the sisters go into labor on the same day. But the sight that greets the midwife is frightful. Each wife delivers only half a child, as if vertically sliced into two. There's half a head, half an exposed brain, one eye, half a nose, half a mouth, and the whole body is cut through like a guillotine went through it. Hair follicles are slit neatly into half. Droplets of blood are suspended mid-molecule. So monstrous is the sight that each woman recoils from it and swaddling her half-baby in a blanket under cover of darkness dumps the ghastly thing into a dumpster. And grieving the loss of a cherished dream, each wife returns to the palace. Now the story might have ended there to be cited forevermore by ten-year-olds as a ditty on the perils of sharing, but for one freak event. A Rakshasi named Jara happens by, foraging for food. Rakshasas, as we know, are man-eaters and this one's hungry. Pickings are scarce, so she's dumpster diving and finds these two weird half-babies. They're tiny, but they look delicious. For ease of transport, she presses them together to tuck under her arm and continues digging. Soon, however, she feels some wiggling. Then she hears some sputtering and what is unmistakably a newborn baby cry. For as soon as the two halves are joined, they meld together and come to life as a 12-pound baby boy. He lets out a mighty howl, so loud as to wake the dead. She almost drops him out of fright. But women from the palace come running out of their quarters and the queens and the king appear as well in their dressing gowns. Caught with a live baby boy standing next to the palace dumpster, Jara has to think fast. Here you go, your majesty, she bows before him smoothly. This is your son. The midwives threw him into the dumpster, but I managed to assemble him together for you and to restore him to life. Accept him as my gift. My son, the king is incredulous. It's a miracle. Thank you. How did you do this? I'm just the instrument, she says modestly. Just glad I got here in time, you know. Otherwise, who knows what might have happened. The king is so grateful, he names the baby after her, Jarasand, literally united by Jara. And his two mothers take him home, nursing him equally as their common child. This freak, Krishna concludes, is Jarasand, present king of Magadha, the most powerful man alive today. He cannot be defeated even by the gods, but with clever planning, we can destroy him.
and in the next hours, he lays out a plan. Let's look at his supports. His two brothers are now dead. His powerful son-in-law, Kunz, I killed myself. His friend Shishupal is out there somewhere, but he won't see us coming because we're not going to go with an army. What even the gods can't accomplish through direct confrontation will do with nimble strategy. So here's what I'm thinking. We'll go to Magadha, just three of us, Bhima, Arjuna and I. We'll have to go in disguise just in case he's seen us on TV. We'll go disguised as young Brahmins, just graduated from university, looking for an audience with him. When we meet him, we'll challenge him to a duel with one of us. He'll be astonished at the chutzpah, but he won't be able to resist. His ego will make him pick Bhima because he's the biggest. He'll deem it beneath his dignity to fight Arjuna or me. Bhima and he will wrestle, and in a one-on-one -on -one competition, Bhima can take him. Yudhishthira is excited. That sounds brilliant. I have confidence in your leadership. You're right. The strategy makes all the difference. If you think we can pull this off, let's do it right away. And the three-man team leaps into action. Dressed as young university graduates, they take the train to Girivraj, the wealthy capital of Magadha, and disembark one station early to survey the territory. It's a festival day, and they can see the king on a royal elephant being worshipped by his priests. They spruce up with perfume and expensive watches from the marketplace and enter the city by the side gate. King Jarasandha likes new talent and he comes out immediately to greet them. But he notices some peculiarities. You present yourself as new graduates, but you're in fancy duds and perfumes. So are you Brahmins or nobles? And why did you enter the city through the side gate instead of the front? Krishna speaks. Graduates need not be only Brahmins, and as for our mode of entry, one enters a friend's house through the front door and an enemy's through the side. So we entered through the side. One of Jarasandha's bushy eyebrows shoots up. Interesting. You're dressed as new graduates, but I don't even know you. How can I be your enemy? You've got 86 heads of state in your custody and you're planning to sacrifice them to Rudra. What kind of macabre satanic ritual is that? You've reduced these monarchs to the status of sacrificial animals. Is that righteous conduct? We follow international law and we're here to enforce it. I'm Krishna of House Vishni and these are Bhima and Arjuna of House Pandava. We're here at King Yudhishthira's behest enforcing Article 8 bis of the Rome Statute. Acts of aggression against the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence of 86 states. And for Article 7, Crimes Against Humanity. Jarasandha laughs out loud. The International Criminal Court? It's a toothless body. You think it can touch me? Every king I have is a POW fairly defeated in battle. They'll be very happy to have you join them. So do you want to fight my armies or do you want to fight me one-on-one? -on -one? 
Which of us would you pick to duel? Asks Krishna, fingers crossed behind his back. Jarasandha looks them over. Seeing Pima towering over the others like a mountain, as anticipated, he picks Pima. I'll take this one. In our next episode, we'll learn the relevance of Jarasan's bizarre story as a baby, two halves joined into one. Jarasan and Pima will fight each other fiercely. They're almost equally matched in strength, and the duel will be a nail-biter. What'll be Krishna's strategy to overcome this impasse? Let's find out, if you'll join me for another episode of The Mahabharata.